We've been in the book of Revelation. Last week we looked at chapter 4, and uh, we're in a time in our world where we really need to know that God is in control. We need to have that hope. We need to have that sense. And, of course, the Lord has always been in control. Sometimes we lose sight of that when we, when we major on our circumstances. That's why chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation should be of comfort and encouragement uh, to all of us as we look toward the Lord. Uh, last week we pondered the great truths of the fourth chapter. I remind you that the Christians that, to whom John was writing, the ones who first received this book, were overwhelmed by their circumstances. Uh, they, were in, they were living in the chaotic present, and all they could see was their perspective, and what they needed was a perspective from heaven. And so John was given a vision of God on his throne. That's the reigning reality. God's on his throne. And all he could, the only way he could describe what he saw as he described the glory of God was as an unapproachable, unfathomable glory. There just aren't words to describe it. We find several pictures in the Bible where people try to describe that. And there were thunder and lightnings coming from the throne, which were tokens of God, God's preemptive providence. And I showed you a passage from the Psalms that was sort of similar, as if it was as if to say God's about to do something. The, the, the throne is rumbling because God is about to act. And in response to that, all of heaven worshiped God's sovereign over their circumstances, and he's sovereign over our circumstances. Though tribulation at times seems to triumph, God still reigns. Though sickness and suffering sometimes reign supreme, God still reigns. Though sorrows like great sea billows roll, God still reigns. That's the great message of the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. But what will God do? As we stand in the middle of our circumstances, that's the question that we can't answer. And when will he do it? And how will we know? John was anxious for answers to these questions. And the believers in Asia Minor to whom he was writing were anxious. And today, as we read the news, as we watch the news, as we look at the circumstances in our world, you are anxious and I am anxious. That's why on Sunday night we're having that class called Be Anxious for nothing. But as we turn to chapter 5 in the book of Revelation, we see God's plan for the future and for their deliverance. Every commanding general has some orders that he passes on to someone. And what we're going to do is we open the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. We see God sitting on the throne with his secret orders for the future in his hand. And he's going to deliver them to someone who is going to carry them out. And so that's what we hope to see as we open Revelation chapter 5, read that first verse. I'm going to read them one at a time to begin with and outline the passage for you. I'll be reading today from the, from the New English Bible. All right, here we go. Then I saw in the right hand of him seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now, first, number one, we just see simply a sealed scroll. 
That's the picture we're supposed to see. That's all you need to see. That's all you need to know. What this is, though, this is the map that leads to the treasure of what God is about to do. These are God's secret orders. Now, normally, a scroll was written uh, on the inside only, but this one is so full of information that it's written on the inside and, and on the backside, and it's sealed with seven seals. Remember this number seven in the book of Revelation has great significance. It does not have so much, its significance does not lie in its mathematical value as much as in its symbolic value. Over and over we see this number seven used, seven lampstands, seven churches, seven angels, seven spirits of God. You'll see some of those sevens in this passage of scripture and I will show you what it symbolizes and you'll understand that a little better as we go forward. But in this moment, John's mind is, is fixed on this scroll that has seven seals. In other words, it's completely sealed. It's unopenable as far as anyone is concerned. And he said, and then in verse two, we come to verse two. He said, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? So first we saw the sealed scroll. Second, we see this searching question. Uh, imagine now, here's an angel who's calling out, sending out this call. He says uh, uh, everywhere, it goes everywhere to, to anyone in heaven, anyone, anywhere. And so that voice uh, imagine what that voice must have been as it echoed throughout the universe. Now, what we're seeing here is simply a drama that heightens our, our, our sense of, of desperation on the one hand. Where are the answers going to come from? When are we going to know? If nobody can open this thing, how are we ever going to know God's plan? When is God's plan ever going to unfold? And then, not only so, uh, but our sense of expectation so this traumatized John to find out that no one is worthy to open this scroll. So verses 3 and 4, as, as we continue to read, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John said, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And so here's our third point. A supreme sorrow on the part of John. John is so sad. John didn't raise his hand to volunteer. There was not a resident of heaven to, uh, to volunteer. No one, not even this strong angel who, who by virtue of his strength dared to open it. No one in all of heaven or in all of earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. Why? Because no one was worthy. John was not worthy. The angel was not worthy. And we look at our own lives and we feel our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, our own defilement as we stand before the throne of God. No one is worthy. That's the great message here. And so John is overwhelmed. Look at verse 4. We're going through it quickly, verse by verse. John's overwhelmed. He says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. John wept because he was living in the chaotic present. That's where I live. That's where you live. Can anybody make sense out of the mess we've made out of our world? Here we are apparently on the precipice 
of a world war, we hate to say that, with leaders who, who seem to have no regard for good or for God, the future is about to unfold, and it, it is as uncertain, our future, yours and mine, is as uncertain as it has ever been in our lifetimes. Think about our children and our grandchildren, how uncertain they must feel. But it, and John just put his hands, his face in his hands and wept. He wept. He said, we need to know what God is doing. We need to know how God is working, where God is working, what God is about to do. That's the way we feel. And then in verse 5, John says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And next, we see a strong lion. I'm just trying to outline it for you and help you see where. And John is told to stop weeping. Don't despair. There are answers to your questions. There is a solution to your problems that appear unsolvable. There is one who can unravel the mysteries that seem hopelessly tangled and complex to your heart and mind. And, he, and here we have this phrase that appears only once in the entire Bible, the phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, as you hear that phrase and you hear me say that it only appears once in the Bible, you would, you would say to me, certainly it must appear more than that. And I saw some people flipping through their Bible this morning trying to find it. Certainly, we've heard it more than once in the Bible. No, it appears only here. And so when you, whenever you find a statement that appears only once in the Bible, you need to look around to see why it's there and where it comes from. And so we find out that it actually comes or has its beginning in the book of Genesis. So to understand something in the last book of the Bible, we have to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, to the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis. If you want to open your Bible there, we'll look at verses, three, uh, uh, verses 9 and 10. And from verses 9 and 10, we read about Judah as a tribe, Judah as an individual, but also as a tribe, the tribe of Judah. The scripture says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now these verses promise that the future rulers of the nation of Israel would come from the tribe of Judah. And of course that began with David. He was the first king from the tribe of Judah. And David was a lion, a leader, a ruler. <clears throat> Someone I heard comment the other day, they said, I would rather follow a hundred sheep, or I'd rather be a part of a hundred sheep led by one lion than a hundred lions led by one sheep. There's a difference between a, a lion leader and a sheep leader. David was a lion leader, and these leaders from the tribe of Judah were to be lion-like. He was a lion from the tribe of Judah, and every king after him would follow in his footsteps as a lion of the tribe of Judah. But in this passage of, in Genesis, which is very important to this passage in the book of Revelation, 
It says when Shiloh comes, something will change. Now in your Bible, depending on what translation you have, the word Shiloh may not appear and instead it may be translated by one of its possible meanings like this. When he to whom it belongs comes. This one will be separated from all others who've been before him and that all nations will be obedient to him. He will not be just a lion from the tribe of Judah. He will be the lion from the tribe of Judah. He will be the king of kings and every knee will bow to him. So Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the promised Messiah for whom the Jews hoped and to whom the Jews should put their in whom the Jews should put their hope today. Jesus, the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is their conquering king. So John is told to weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. He's the one who can make sense out of the mess that we've made out of our world. Now, he's further described here as the root of David. This is also the only time in our Bible where this expression is used, where this title is given to anyone. And so to find a reference to this or to understand it, we need to go to the book of Isaiah to chapter 11 and look at verses 1 through 4 and then verse 10, where the Bible predicts a time in the future when... A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, by the way, is the father of David. And a branch, a single branch, from his roots will bear fruit. And now, remember we talked about the seven spirits of God. The only place in the Bible where God's spirit is described in its sevenfold fullness, where it comes close to that, is in this passage. Where, where we find reference to the Spirit of the Lord described in seven different ways. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, a reference we've already seen in the book of Revelation. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also a future reference in the book of Revelation. In verse 10 of chapter 11 of Isaiah, the Bible reads, In that day, the root of Jesse, he's called here in the book of Revelation, the root of David, The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and the place of his rest will be glorious. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the root of David. And the Bible says here that he's conquered. So there's no reason to weep. There's no reason to worry. He's won a decisive victory over the forces of evil. When did that happen? Where was that battle fought? Who was there to see it take place? So John wants to know. And so he turns to look at this lion, wouldn't you? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And so we look at verse 6. Now we're in verse 6. 
Please look. As he turns to look at the lion and he says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the next, here's the next point. He sees not a lion, but a slain lamb standing. How does a lion become a lamb? Well, there's no magic here. These are simply symbols to identify who Jesus is, what battle he fought, and how it was won. It's the battle he fought on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is Veterans Day. This weekend, we're remembering and honoring our veterans. And we know that many veterans come home with the scars of war. Some of them you can see. Some of them you can't see. Here is one who's come from a battle, and he bears the scars of the battle. It says the lamb was standing, but it bore the marks of battle. It was standing as if slain. Now, this word slain here is not a nice word. Uh, It's not an ugly word, but the primary meaning of the word slain means to butcher or to slaughter or to kill. But instead of the lamb being slain, the lamb is standing. Now, by the way, the fact that he has seven eyes and seven horns and the seven spirits of God, seven, remember, is not so important mathematically as it is symbolically. Horns in the Old Testament were emblems of power. So if he has seven horns, that means he has all power and all authority. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and preach the gospel. He gave the great commission. He has seven eyes, which means he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. And he has the seven spirits of God. He has the fullness of God's Holy Spirit. Paul said in Colossians that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in him bodily. And so here he is. Now, by the way, when Jesus died on the cross, he ascended to heaven. We know that. And the Bible says he ascended and he was seated at the right hand of God. And that's the way Jesus is pictured as our high priest in the Bible, as seated at the right hand of God. But there are moments in Scripture where Jesus is not seated, but he's standing. And when he's standing, it appears that he's standing in behalf of or in defense of his people. Example number one from the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 5. Stephen is about to be stoned, and the Bible says in Acts, chapter 7, verse 55, that that Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, standing for Stephen, standing to receive Stephen. And here in Revelation, as God's people on earth were suffering, facing an uncertain future, John saw a vision of God's glory, God on the throne, and Jesus standing before the throne of God, ready to take the scroll, break its seals, ready to bring history to its close and bring God's people home. That's what he saw. That's what you should see. You should see a Savior who was not only 
sovereign over their circumstances, but is also sovereign over my circumstances and your circumstances, not ignorant or insensitive to your plight or to your struggles. So, all of us go through seasons of life, all of us do, when life seems out of control, one catastrophe after another strikes. Life is an endless series of tragedies and sorrows, and as we look at world events, as we look at circumstances from our perspective, like John, sometimes we could just put our face in our hands and cry, but the word to John was, weep no more. And now we pick up with the next verse, verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now you have to see this picture. Here are these elders, and we don't. I said last week we don't know who they are. Some people say they're the church. That's fine if you want to say that. Other people say there's some, some group of heavenly beings we really don't know. The Bible does not give us a clear picture, but here, here they're holding bowls full of incense. You ever burned incense? It smells good, doesn't it? And sometimes it smokes. And, and what does the smoke do? Where does the smoke go? Does smoke go up or down? It goes up. It rises. And so these prayers are seen as incense. And where, where are they going? They're rising up before God, and it's a sweet-smelling aroma to God. God is, God is hearing the prayers of his people. That's the picture. Bowls full of your prayers. Bowls full of my prayers. You think, God's not hearing me. They're rising up before God. They've got bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they're rising up, and, he, and, and they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Now, by the way, in this, let me just draw attention that depending on the translation of the scripture you have, it may say you ransomed us. And, and that's why some people say these elders are, are the church. That's fine. But other translations say people. The, the emphasis is who did the ransoming? Who did the saving? Who did the work? Jesus did the work and ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation because, after all, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, he saved and made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And here we come to our last point. What is this? This is just a heavenly choir singing salvation's song. We're going to sing that song in a little bit. We're going to sing the same song at the end of this service that they sang here in the book of Revelation. Maybe not the same song, but certainly the same words. And hopefully with the same intent and the same, and, the, and the same heart. Now I know that our minds can't fathom the worship of heaven that took place in that moment, but in the final moments of this service, I, I just want you to shift your focus. I understand everybody here has problems. I know that. You got problems in your home, I've got problems in my home. 
You got things you worry about. I have things I worry about. We have, we have worries that if we allowed them to, they would steal our sleep at night and our minds would chase those worries all night long because we live in the chaotic present. And sometimes there's more chaos in your life than there is in others. That's just true in every life. Where do we look in moments like that? Where do we find our hope? Who has the answers to our problems? Who has the solution? When will we see these solutions? Who, who holds the future, by the way? Do you see who, who took it? The secret plan of God for the future? Do you see who took it right out of the hand of God sitting on the throne? It's in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who will unfold the future. He's the one who will open the seals that will bring the future, God's future plan for his people and his future judgment on the world to reality. Jesus has the future in his hands. But listen to me, what's very important here to understand so that you will be able to sing salvation song too is to understand that not only does he have somebody's distant future in his hands, what these people in Asia Minor in these seven churches needed to know is that he had their future in his hands. And what's really important for you to know is that he has your future in his hands. Your future is really uncertain. You just don't know how uncertain it is. If you're here today and you're past 60 years old, you know that your future is uncertain because you've got more questions than you ever had. You don't know how it's all going to work out because whatever plan you were working doesn't work. And you know you can't make a plan for the days ahead. But you know if you're here and you're 25 years old or 35 years old or maybe even 40 years old, you think you can draw out a plan that will get you from point A to point B. Well, you're going to find out it doesn't work that way. But who you can trust is the Lord Jesus Christ who has a plan and a purpose for your life. And he will work that purpose out for you if you will trust him. So let's read the rest of the chapter. Then I looked, and I heard the round, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive, and you can count them here, seven of them. I wonder why there's seven. Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell, fell down and worshipped. Man, that's all you can do. When you see who God is and you see what, he's, what He can do and what His plan is, you just worship at His feet and you trust Him because what else can you do? Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your wisdom? Are you trusting in your strength? Do you think that you're worthy? None of us are worthy, but he is worthy of our worship. And so this morning as we close this service, we want to join in singing the words of this scripture, 
song that some of you will know. You don't realize you know it until you start. You may not have even put it with this passage of Scripture until we sing it. But as we do, I hope you will sing it with an understanding that God not only has the distant future under His command, but He has your future under His command. And He's worthy. He is. Let's stand as we sing. If you need to respond, you respond. This is our invitation.